Today's show is going to be done a little bit differently. We decided to joint record an episode with our friend, Dr. Richard Gassaway. Rich is the host of the Situational Awareness Matters podcast and is a speaker, author, consultant, uh, all-around good guy. He's a retired fire chief, and his goal in life is to help individuals and teams understand human factors, how to reduce the impact of situational awareness barriers, and improve decision-making under stress. He's authored a ton of books. He speaks all around North America. He helps companies, agencies, and departments. We go way deep into training and situational awareness. I hope you guys like this show. And uh, without wasting any further time, let's jump right into it. Richard's going to kick it off for everybody. Here we go. Hey, everyone. Rich Gassaway here from Situational Awareness Matters. And I'm with Adam Kanakin, who has a podcast called Tactical Breakdown. And we got connected on LinkedIn and we had a long conversation about how his mission and my mission align on uh, trying to help first responders and those in high risk environments improve their decision making. So I asked Adam if I could be a guest on his show and we're going to record this, kind of dual record this. And so we'll play this on both the Tactical Breakdown show and on the Situational Awareness Matters show. So, Adam, thank you for having me as a, a guest on the show. I can say the same thing, man. I really appreciate you having me on and reaching out, and I'm really excited to, uh, to cut this interview. It should be good. What's the background of the Tactical Breakdown? How did, what was your inspiration for that, and, and who's your, your target audience, and what are you trying to accomplish with the show? Sure, yeah. So, the whole idea for Tactical Breakdown uh, basically came about when I took some time off from work. I had my second child um, and I was at home and, you know, I was working, uh, I was working for a private security firm um, as a higher up and I was working in a more managerial role where I was doing, you know, reports and RFPs, RFQs and dealing with shareholders and, and putting in 60 hour days. And my, my passion and my background has always been training and teaching um, and instructing. And it was like that when I was in the military and afterwards with defensive tactics training and, and uh, self-defense training. So I had one of those come to Jesus moments and it was, what am I doing here? Like this isn't, I'm not happy. And the one thing that does make me happy is talking and training with people in the law enforcement, military and first responder communities. I've been really lucky in my career that I've had some amazing instructors, amazing leaders that have guided me. And I, I wanted to be able to take their knowledge and information and share that with everyone, because I don't know what it's like in the US, but I know it's very similar to what it is like up here in Canada, especially interagency communication when it comes to training and tactics and whether that be law enforcement, first responder community, fire EMS, whatever. There's a lot of organizations are very insular with their training. So you know, one agency may come up with a training or tactic that is effective for them. Um, but sometimes they, the higher ups really don't want them to share that with other agencies because, you know, it's like, these are our toys. We don't want to share them. So when I'm dealing with instructors and trainers and, and, you know, when I talk to these guys and girls, they say, I want to give this information to everyone because it's super useful to us, but I don't have any way to do it. I don't know who to talk to. And the whole idea for this program was to, to create a platform for them to do that. And I think where you and I kind of tied in together, not only with the first responder side of things, uh, but the situational awareness portion. And 
a lot of it comes down to mental health as well, but dealing with situations and having these people, whether they be frontline officers or fire paramedics, whether they be military members who were deployed, sharing their stories and sharing just sharing the things that really struck home for them so that other people can learn from them. So hopefully that if they're ever put in those same situations that they're able to, to act quicker um, and make smarter decisions. I hope that answers your question. It, it, it does. It's a, it's a, it's a good mission. Now that your show is newer. Is that, is Brand that new. fair? Brand that, new. Yeah. Uh, if somebody wanted to find it, where would they find it at? Sure. So the website is thebreakdown.ca. So uh, .ca, because we're up here in Canada, but it's thebreakdown.ca. And you can find the podcast on any of the platforms right now. Um, so you can get us on iTunes or CastBox or Spreaker or any, whatever your flavor is, uh, you can find us on there. We have a couple episodes up right now. Um, but as you and I discussed earlier, we got about a dozen interviews uh, in the queue from experts all around North America. And uh, those are going to be coming up very regularly here over the next couple of weeks. And we're going to get them all out there. Let's see what happens. What components of situational awareness do you think I could be most helpful to your audience on? Well, I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a very broad topic, right? That's the thing. It's, it's amazing because I think situational awareness is one of those things where, you know, I know you come from the fire EMS background um, and a lot of the people that I've dealt with come from the military law enforcement background, but it's, it's, it's one in the same really. So when, when you, we, you and I got started talking, I thought that it'd be amazing to have you kind of share what it's like from your experiences just so that everyone listening on my end can see that there, the commonalities are, it's, it's there, right? There's, there's really no difference um, if you're a first responder showing up to a call and it doesn't matter what uniform you're wearing. Yeah, I, think yeah. that's, I think that's a really important message to send. Yeah, I, I, I could make one point of clarification in that while my background is as a firefighter and paramedic, um, a fair amount of my training is it, with law enforcement and military and aviation and medicine. It's not strictly down the lane of fire and EMS. In fact, the, the message would be valuable for anyone who works in a high risk, high consequence, time compressed environment with changing conditions. And while my career experience, you know, is in that lane from the fire and EMS where the real, I think, gift of the contribution comes is when I uh, went back to school and, and did my PhD research in cognitive neuroscience, trying to understand, you know, what happens to us in stressed situations and how brain function changes and how our thinking changes and perhaps how behavior changes. And I think that is the, value of the broader application of the of the of the topic and including a fair amount of my customers are business and industry in fact i was just in canada just two weeks ago uh working with uh, syncrude oil refinery in uh, in fort mcmurray and oh, yeah. in training their oil refinery operators on situation awareness and high-risk decision making so truly the the application of the topic is is broader than just my career experience would you know would would maybe let someone to believe yeah no that's that's awesome and the one of the things too is i find that a lot of the times you know 
it's funny when you move to the civilian side of things and in private industry and you start seeing a lot of SOPs and you start seeing a lot of things that they do and you can tell that they're where that came from was either police, military training and, and their programs and procedures. And then it gets kind of just switched to the, to the private industry, but it, it originates there. Right. So, yeah, well, well, you know, that's true, but also in part, um, some of the things that, that we do in the first responder arena, you would think that business and industry already know about that and already do that. And they don't, you know, in some of the, some of the things that I observe when I go and do a, an assessment is rather surprising for me that what they don't know or what they're not applying that is just so second nature to what we do that it's, uh, I don't know, sometimes stunning to think that they were, you would have thought they already had that figured out and, and they don't. And, and then when you, when you make a recommendation, you're like, Oh my God, that was so good. And you're like, Oh my God, we've been doing that for 20 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what I, one of the things that I did want to talk to you about, cause we discussed this was kind of your, the, your process of going through your education, how you're in, you got inspired to, to go through and learn more about, you know, the academic side of things, the, the neuroscience, can yeah. you can you share a little bit about where where that came from and, and how you got that started? Yeah, so thanks for asking. For the largest part of my career, I had become a student of near misses and casualties. Early on, somebody had said to me, if you want to try to keep those who work with you and for you safest, understand how responders get hurt and killed, and then learn every lesson you can about how not to let those things happen again, you know, don't repeat the mistake, learn those lessons. So I immersed myself in these casualty reports, trying to glean everything that I could from them. But along the way, something started happening that uh, I I really didn't realize was happening at at the time that it was, but I realized later that it was. I started to become rather jaded and cynical and um, hateful and accusatory of those people who were at those incidents saying things like, you know, how could they do something so dumb? And, you know, how, how could they have somebody so incompetent in charge of that incident that would have let something like that occur? And, and the truth of the matter is I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was um, labeling those people. And in the, in the end, as I think back about it, I, I think I was doing that to try to make myself feel better because I could read a report where something went terribly wrong and I could say, well, I know why that happened. The person who was in charge was incompetent, but I'm not. And I'd read another one and say, I know why that happened. The person who was in charge was inexperienced, but I'm not. And I'd read another one and say, I know why that happened. The person in charge of that one was an idiot, (laughs) but I'm not. Mm -hmm. And somehow it made me feel like I was insulated from having these things happen to me because I, I could always put a label on them that I said, that doesn't apply to me. So therefore, these bad things won't happen to me because I have it figured out and they didn't. And it was, it was foolish to be thinking that way, but I, but I was. And then, and then um, I found myself asking a question that I couldn't answer. And that really, um, that really was uh, frustrating me. And the question was not a difficult question, but I asked it so many times. And the question was, when they were working at those high-risk, high-consequence environments and things were going bad, how could they not see it 
coming. How could so many talented and experienced people not see this train wreck of an event that was unfolding in front of them? And, um, and I wanted to try to understand what was going on that they couldn't. And that's what inspired me to um, enroll in the PhD program. And, and I did my research in the neuroscience of trying to understand how we process information, um, how we try to make sense out of changing conditions quickly, uh, how it drives our decision-making, good and bad, um, how it drives our physical movement, both good and bad. And, and out of that, uncovered, uh, uncovered some things that the first responder community had st stepped up and said, that's, that's good stuff. That's valuable to us. And that was, uh, that was a little over 10 years ago. And at the time I was still working, <laughs> working and going to school full time. And then, uh, and then I finished school. And when I put the topic out there, I got so much interest in it that I actually ended up having to quit my fire chief's job because I couldn't meet the demand of the uh, training and consulting. And so I had to step away from that career. And for the last 10 years, uh, have uh, sustained myself and my family by consulting and teaching on situational awareness and high risk decision-making and, um, again, you know, for either the first responder community or for business and industry, I would have thought that they would have maybe had some of the stuff that I teach figured out, but I'm finding that they don't. In fact, it's very frustrating for them that they don't. And so what I try to do is just help them to, you know, figure it out to be better at making high risk decisions that are hopefully more accurate <laughs> than than what some of the casualties reports would have led us to believe. Yeah. So yeah. I know it's hard to narrow down because there's so many things that I'm sure you speak to, but if, if you had to pick one or two of the major points that kind of get brought up and are your key, the key things that you speak to when you go in and speak with either agencies, individuals, or companies, what are those, what are those situation awareness points that you find are always lacking? Uh, well, <laughs> The main point is, if somebody contacts me and says, uh, we want to have a class because we think situational awareness is important and, uh, you know, we're not, we're not doing real well in that arena. And I say, well, how do you define situational awareness? And that's where the conversation gets very quiet very quickly mm -hmm. um, because it's a term that people toss around a lot, uh, but they don't really know what it means. They don't know how to develop it. They don't know how it goes sideways. They don't know how to correct it if it goes sideways. And it's one of those terms that it gets thrown around a lot as a buzzword. Even people in the military who are in my programs, they'll say things to me like, oh man, they're preaching situational awareness all the time, all the time, every exercise, everything we do, it's situational awareness. And I'll say, what does situational awareness mean? And they're like, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and they look at me like well it means pay attention keep your head on a swivel and I'm like oh that's just such a small component of it um, so what, what I find is pretty much um, no matter who I'm dealing with they struggle 
to understand what it is. I think it's weird because they know it's important, mm-hmm. but they don't know how to put a, um, a frame around it. And what they, and then what they don't uh, understand because of that is they don't understand the ways that situational awareness uh, get impacted in their work environment. So when I'm, when I'm working with first responders, um, you know, fire, EMS, police, dispatch, emergency management, I, I know that business. I mean, I've never been a police officer, but I know the business of street level type decision-making uh, in, in the public employment arena. Um, so I don't have to, I don't have to go into an organization and say, well, I need to, or a, into a public safety organization and say, I need to do an assessment to really see what the problem is. But when I go to business or industry, I really have to go there and, immerse myself in what they do to really see what the situational awareness problems are in their work environment. Like when I mentioned I was at Syncrude, that all started, you know, I've been training there now for two years and it all started two years ago when they contacted me and said, Hey, we think your program might have some value to us. And I said, well, what I'd like to do is come up and, and uh, do an immersion with, the uh, process operators to see what they do and how they do it and interview them and look at your accident reports and really see what the true situational awareness related issues are. And what I find is in industry, there is some commonality, but there are some things that are very um, unique to their work environment that might not be present in the next work environment. So I try not to give them some generic packaged um, program because then some of their employees might say, well, that doesn't apply to us. You know, we're not, we're not in that kind of an environment. So when I do the immersion, then I can customize it so that when I'm speaking to the employees of that company, I use very specific examples of things that have happened there, accidents that have happened, people that I've interviewed, what people have said to me about how their awareness is impacted under certain circumstances or conditions and, and, uh, and then, and then customize the, the content to fit, uh, to fit, to, you know, to fit their need. Cause in the end, you know, I want their, I want the training to be valuable for them, but I also want it to, to be able to help them to have a s- developed skill set that allows them to, to think through their high risk decision environments differently than, than what they have previously. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that I've always noticed is when people bring up critical incidents, they, the situational awareness and critical incidents almost go hand in hand. Um, and it sounds to me like you draw from both, both sides of, of the, uh, the coin there where you're talking to, to corporations and you're talking about accident workplace incidents and accidents that can happen. Whereas on the other side with the first responders, law enforcement, we're, and the, the situations are two totally different, but the one thing that always is going to remain the same is going to be the, the person, right? Human, us all being human beings. And I think, I think that's where I was really interested to hear more from you about was because from my experience, um, when I think of situational awareness and critical incidents, critical incident debriefs, you talk about both psychological and physiological responses during these types of situations. So 
can can we dive a little bit farther into that? I mean, I know there's a lot of people that understand now, not so much 10, 15 years ago, but but now starting to understand that stress is a very real thing and it can affect everybody completely differently. Um, and when they're in these situations, you may go through a whole situation and you don't remember a thing or you may remember every single detail and it from individual to individual, it's going to be completely different. So can we, can we go into that a little bit? Can you share a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, stress is the game changer. There's no, no doubt about that. The, you know, the biological, chemical, physical changes of the brain uh, under stressful conditions are measurable and significant with the creation of fMRI technology, functional magnetic resonance imaging. Um, it's very easy now for researchers to literally see changes in brain function as a result of stressed, you know, stress as much stress as they can induce on in somebody during an MRI and, and see how the brain function changes. They can do blood work to see how chemical changes are occurring and the effects of those chemical changes and, you know, there's there's a whole concoction of of chemicals that get released when somebody's having a stress event. You know, we all, I say we all, I think many people are familiar with adrenaline, which is um, actually released from the adrenal glands, which are attached to the kidneys. But the, the, the message to release the adrenaline actually is triggered from the brain, which then, the, you know, the adrenaline is released to give us energy to be able to perform and, and, you know, the brain does it on, on the notion that we're under, we're in, in stress, but we're in risk. And the brain says, you know, release the adrenaline to give us the energy to get us out of our risky situation, you know, which then is connected to fight or flight and, and other chemicals get released as well for, you know, for example, endorphins, uh, which is a neurotransmitter. Endorphins are, the term endorphin is a connection of two words to make one. And I'm sure there's some technical term for what two words get combined like that, which I don't know. So I'll look real dumb when I say that, but endorphins are endogenous morphine. So endogenous means morphine generated from outside the cellular level. And the morphine is a painkiller. So in a high risk situation, a person literally could be hurt, but not feel any pain because the morphine is the naturally produced morphine is masking the pain. And it, again, it's all done around the context of helping us survive in high-risk environments because the brain knows in a high-risk environment, you're likely to be hurt while you're doing whatever you're doing in your high-risk environment. And therefore, the endorphins might mask the pain to allow you to continue to perform or to save yourself but morphine then also has other you know side effects uh the stimulants stimulants so it's going to increase heart rate and respirations and uh blood pressure and contribute to sweating and you know so there's i guess for every good there's maybe some potential challenge you might you might feel the you know the heart kind of uh, palpitating that's a combination of the morphine and the adrenaline and, you know, so this concoction of chemicals designed to aid us in our survival-driven decision-making is uh, all with good intention. 
one thing that happens that um, I think that the the listeners should be aware of is that we you know we have two sides of our brain. We have the left brain, right brain. We get that little ridgy thing that kind of goes up the middle, separates the two. The left brain is predominantly. I mean, we use both sides of our brain. So if somebody says, I'm a left brain person. No, you're, you're a whole brain person. You just might more affiliate with left brain. But left brain is more critical thinking, analysis. Right brain is more creative and intuitive. And under high stress situations, the analytical left brain will struggle. It, the kind of things that we could sit in a classroom and ace an exam uh, because there's you know no stress other than the stress of the exam. When we get in the field, we literally might have amnesia to some of those things that we can prove. I knew it. I mean, look, I got a I got a A on the exam. I got a 98% on my exam. And then they get in the field and under stress, they can't remember some of that. Or especially if it requires you know um, analytical thinking, they'll struggle to do that analysis because left brain struggles in high stress situations. And the advantage is that the right brain kicks in and the right brain being um, creative, problem solving, intuitive driven thinking dominates. And that's probably to our advantage. Well, it is to our advantage in high risk situations because left brain thinking is slow and right brain thinking is fast. And in some of these situations that we're in, it requires pretty fast decision-making. We can't form a committee and figure out what we're going to do <laughs> in some of the problems that we deal with. So uh, the right brain's ability to um, tap into past experiences, instinct, intuition, and drive decisions and actions uh, gives us the ability to be quick, nimble, action-oriented people. The downside of that is that we can act pretty quick without doing a lot of thinking and analysis of, of what we're doing. Um, so, you know, one of our hopes is that when we do this quick thinking and decisions that we get it right because we got to do it quick and we probably only have one chance to get it right. So we want to make sure that it is um, nimble and accurate. And that, that can present a challenge. So two major things on that for me. One is for the, for the sake of the shows here, what we'll do is um, I, there is a ton of literature out there. I'm um, in a ton of information when we're talking about SNS and PNS. So your sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic nervous systems, what happens during activation when you get that epinephrine, norepinephrine dumps, what your body does physiologically and, and all that kind of stuff, which I think is super important for everybody, especially in the first responder community, military communities to know um, if they don't know already. And there's some amazing resources out there, obviously on combat by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman and different, different publications out there have a lot of information about that. So I think what I'll do is, especially on my side and, and you can as well, we'll, we can put some links on there for everybody who's listening to, to access that information. But yep. one of the things that really stuck out to me when you're talking about that was how do we, when, when we're talking about training and, and teaching and showing people how to, you know, this is what's going to happen. So how do we respond to it? And I know in the, from my military background and anybody in the military will say this is there's a reason why we do the type of training that we do and it's repetition and it's over and over and over again, because like you said, under stress, 
you're not going to be able to draw from that that type of thinking where I can I can cycle through and, and make conscious decisions on what's going to happen. My body is basically going to go to what it, what it thinks is going to keep me alive or get me to the next level. So can we talk a little bit about the how you integrate that into your into training and and sharing that with organizations so that they can start developing their training systems to battle this physiological and psychological response that everybody has. Yeah. So one of the challenges that I see when it comes to how we do our training and I, as I, as I talk about this, I could perhaps put myself as the poster child of the person who did it wrong, but didn't know any better about the fact that I was doing it wrong. As I was training first responders we would create a script for the training event and then we would take them through the training event beginning to end and then have them repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and without even realizing and it's going to sound odd and maybe even a little embarrassing for me without even realizing that what we were doing was not realistic I mean, we thought it was, but it, but it wasn't. Uh, and I'll give, I'll give you a police example that it's actually came, this story came from somebody that was in uh, one of my programs who we were talking about the importance of repetition in building scripts of knowledge that we can draw on for automatic performance. And in the middle of this conversation, he, this officer shares this story about a video that he had seen. Now, I've looked for this video and I cannot find it and I wish I could because I would love to be able to incorporate it and, and share it, but it's it's out there somewhere because uh, I don't think he'd had him any reason to embellish the truth when he was telling the story in the class. But these two, this uh, quick mart is being robbed and as they're being robbed, a marked police car pulls up to the quick mart. And the person who's robbing the quick mart sees the officers pull up and he doesn't want to get into a confrontation with a police officer. So he goes to the back of the store and hides and the two officers come into the store and they split up. And as the one goes to the back of the store, he rounds the, the turn and the robber takes a gun and he points the gun at the police officer and the officer and and i you know and again because i'm not trained as a police officer i might not use the right terminology and you can correct me if we need to but i think it'll get people get the gist of it the officer's been trained in defensive tactics he knows what to do he's been taught how to disarm somebody and the officer literally just pulled the gun right out of the guy's hand and then then the bad guy put his hands up and then the officer handed him his gun back and they got the video surveillance camera footage. And that's what this guy was telling me that he saw from the quick mart where it showed this officer exchanging this gun back and forth. Mm-hmm. And all the fellow officers couldn't understand why that officer would do something seemingly so dumb. And what it tied back to was the training. When they were doing the training and they do that quick maneuver to take the gun away, it was two officers doing this training and he'd take the gun away and then maybe the instructor would say, okay, that was pretty good, but let me give you some coaching on technique. Let's do it again. He'd hand the gun back and they would do the training again, you know, do the exercise again, take the gun away, hand it back, take the gun away, hand it back. Well, all the while, seemingly as innocent as it, as it would appear, 
he's developing a script of muscle memory that under stress can become an automatic performance without really conscious thinking. And in that real event, he took that gun off that assailant and that subconscious script of, in this case, muscle memory said, give the gun back and let's do this again. And, and that's exactly, uh, exactly what he did, which is perhaps the least desirable thing to be done. And the truth of the matter is that the, that exercise should not, should not end when the gun has been taken away from the uh, robber, the exercise should continue. That would include then, uh, and again, if, sorry if I get the term wrong, a takedown and a handcuffing and, you know, uh, the, to secure the person, but they, they stopped the exercise at just taking the gun away and then they would give it back and do it again instead of seeing that evolution all the way through to the end. And this shortcutting of the evolution is what we do a lot in the fire and EMS world. And we do it because in the, in the sake of expediency, we don't have, we, at least we perceive that we don't have time to, you know, do a full evolution. So we just do pieces and parts. And as we do pieces and parts, our brain is learning pieces and parts. And what then what we further assume is, well, in the end, it's logical that we would just say, now put that all together. And somehow in our mind that all these pieces and parts are just going to fall in alignment and we're just automatically going to know what to do. And when we have our calm, non-stressed brain working, we go, well, yeah, no, duh, you know, that I would know, I would know to do that. I would know to then, you know, do the takedown in the handcuff. It's so logical. It is logical, but it's left brain logical. <laughs> and, oh, there, and then comes under stress, old right brain that says, do it just like you were trained to do it. And there you find yourself doing it just like you've been trained to do it. And as I look at these casualty reports where these responders do what seems to be inappropriate. Some might call dumb things. I don't think anybody, I don't think any responder does something dumb. They might be ignorant about what the right thing is to do, but I don't think they're out there trying to do things dumb or to be a stupid person or anything like that. But as they do things that don't appear to be best practice, somebody will line up and say, what in the world were they thinking when they did that? Hmm. And maybe they weren't thinking. Maybe what they were doing is literally automatic. No thought required. Just, just, it just, it's a script. It's and a script that is probably well rehearsed and, you know, just waiting there to be called up. And as soon as that script gets called up, the script gets played and then something bad happens. And so what I do sometimes is I work, when I work with an organization is I go back and I look at how they train. Because when I see something happen in the real world that doesn't seem to be smart, I wonder, well, where did they learn to do it that way? Mm-hmm. Did they learn to do it that way? And if they did, how how was it that somebody taught them to do exactly what we wouldn't want them to do? You wouldn't want an officer who takes a gun off somebody to turn around and give it back to him. So then all his peers look at him and say, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. Why would you do that? And he can't even explain why he did it. He doesn't know why he did it. But then when you back up and you look at the training, you literally see that. Now, let me give you one more thing and then I'll, then I'll quiet. And we can have more conversation. <laughs> so I, I was teaching, I was teaching that concept. I used that example 
with firefighters and I was in at a, at a public safety academy building in Pennsylvania. So it's a building where they had hold police training, fire training, EMS training, like a whole big complex. So I had fire and EMS in this session and I'm explaining this to him. We take a break. I said, okay, it's time for a break. We take a break. And as I'm walking up the hall, there is a door to a classroom and the door is closed, but there's a kind of a long rectangular window in the door. That's about, you know, mm, you know six inches wide and, you know, three feet high. And so I, I peer in there to see what's happening in that room. Guess what they're doing? They're doing exactly the evolution that I had just talked about disarming somebody and then giving the weapon back and trying it again, or they give the weapon back and another person comes and tries it. But either way, they disarm somebody and handed the weapon back. And, and, I, and, I, and I so much wanted to tell the people in my class, hey, y'all gather around. <laughs> here's, the, here's the poster child event. I, I didn't, though, because I didn't want to you know, embarrass you know, the instructor or the students that were in that class. But I was stunned to see the very thing that I was talking about being done right there. And there might be some out there that would say, well, we would never train that way. We would do the full takedown and handcuffing and God bless you. If you do, there's, you know, good, <laughs> but there are some that, that don't. They, and, and, and the instructors have the best of intention as I did. I had the best of intentions, but what I realized is I was shortcutting a lot of the scripting or I was piecemealing the scripting with the belief that that smart responder will be able to somehow in their brain find all the appropriate scripts and appropriately align them and do all the appropriate things all in less than five seconds or 10 seconds. And it, at the time that I was doing it that way, I didn't understand what I understand now. So it seemed, it seemed logical. And now to me, it seems crazy. There are so many things that are like rattling through my head right now with the, with the stories or the story you just told there. One, I am familiar with what you're talking about there. And the sad thing is, and you know this, that's not an isolated incident. That's actually been well-documented multiple times. And unfortunately, some of the other circumstances have ended up in serious injuries or fatalities for the people involved. So mm. I think, you actually, when we first started this conversation, you said something that rings true to this and it's, you don't know what you don't know. And that's exactly what happens when you have an instructor or a trainer who it, it and every single person I feel when they get into that role where you become an instructor, become a trainer, become a mentor, you're not doing it to, to give false information or to be malicious or to do something incorrect because you really feel that what you're teaching and training is going to be effective and does work, but you don't know what you don't know. And unfortunately, if the instructor level trainer who put you through didn't share that information with you, you're, you're working with, with half the information that you need. Yeah. And one of the things that you brought up there, and it's funny because I had an interview with a gentleman by the name of Mr. Brian Willis, and he was actually the first person who ever put me through my uh, PPCT instructor level course back in the day. And one of the parts of that program was firearms disarms. And one of the things that we always started off with was here is, and he'd share stories like that, where this is why when we're training recruit level 
or senior level members, this is the reason why we show them this is the skill and you go static and you say, you know, you break down the minutia of it, right? This is where your hand placement is. This is, these are all those little things that you, the technical pieces that you need to know. But once we get that part sorted out, we play those scenarios out to the end, just like you said. So that, that the last piece of information that's going through their head isn't me giving you that firearm back. It's completing that whole scenario. So after the disarm, whether now if I'm a, a, an officer and I have my own sidearm, we're trained to, you don't know if that weapon's functioning or not. So you're always going to go to yours because you know your, your weapon system is good. So whether you're discarding, you're, you're controlling that other firearm or whatever, but you then gain control of the subject, you move into either hands-on or you or your partner goes hands-on or you, you do anything, any one of the million things that you can do in those situations, but you don't stop with just, here's the firearm back, right? Here's the, here's the training gun back. Now, when we, when we do that now and we're going through those kind of static training movements the simplest way is really to one there's the subject and the officer and so the first iteration the officer disarms the subject and what happens then is the subject now becomes the officer and the officer becomes the subject so instead of handing it back you just reverse roles and then go through the scenario again reverse roles go through the scenario again just so that you never have that situation where here's the knife back here's the gun back here's whatever right yeah. Um, and, but that's, that's a training level issue. Yeah. You know, it, and, and that's, a, I think that's exactly the point that you were getting at was that it's, it's the trainer that doesn't know that all those little things that they're doing and everything, the thing that they're sharing with those people, th- it's being retained, whether yeah. it's consciously or subconsciously, it's the same way that, you know, children retain information when they're going through grade school. Yeah. Right. They pick up on all those little things, whether or not they, they consciously remember it or not, your brain is a sponge and every little thing that you share could be retained. And that's why from an instructor standpoint, you have to be very careful as to this is the information that I'm sharing. And because it, it's just that is that they may pick up on that one thing that you think is a joke or ha ha ha, whatever, but that's that one thing that that person retains. And now in that stress situation, their brain Rolodex is right to that moment because they remembered it because it stood out because it was funny. But like you said, you lose that left part of your brain. You can't now decide that that was a joke, not real. And your right brain goes, Oh, actionable. I'm going to use it. And I think, I think that's a major, major concern, especially for instructors is that knowing that everything that you share is going to be retained in some way, shape or form. And if it's not the correct information, when it comes down to a life or death, struggle or life or death scenario they may be on the wrong side of it you're you're spot on spot on and as i think back when i became an instructor i had to take a class to be certified as an instructor and the class taught me you know instructional methodology you know how to present in a classroom you know I'll, i'll age myself how to use an overhead projector how to how to give feedback to a student uh, who's maybe underperforming, how to create a test question and things like that. It didn't teach me anything about how people's brains learn and recall information. That was completely devoid 
of all my instructor training. And then when I went back to school and I started to learn these things, holy cow, Adam, it, it was like, it was like, I, I had this epiphany, like, Oh my God, it all makes sense now. Why mm -hmm. we're doing some of the things that we do. Heck, some of the things that first responders were doing to get hurt and killed were the very things that I was training them to do. So what I'm doing is I'm watching these videos and reading these case studies and they are doing exactly what I would have trained them to do, exactly the way I would have trained them to do it, exactly to the catastrophic ending. And now I'm looking at myself and saying, the people you trained, they're set up to fail. And you've done this, Rich. It's your fault. And I can't fix it because, you know, they've gone on in life. You know, this is, in some cases, decades ago. And I was just training them the way that I was trained. And, and some of these shortcuts have been trained into me too. And I, while I haven't had a catastrophic outcome, you know, I have no severe burns and I've got all my fingers and toes. I have done things that seemingly were inexplainable that after the fact, I would reflect back and even maybe sometimes chuckle at myself. Like, I don't even know why I did that. I mean, holy cow. I mean, I didn't remember, you know, I didn't, it was inexplainable. I just did it so quickly. In most cases, it turned out fine. So, you know, as these instructors are teaching these flawed techniques, although innocently, they're not bad instructors. <laughs> they've been, they're just teaching the what they've been taught the way they've been taught. Maybe 99% of the time, it'll turn out fine just doing it that way. But it's that 1% under those most significant consequence environments where that automatic performance then leads to something really undesirable. And then people line up to criticize and to make fun of the person who did what they did because it just seems inexplainable. Where in fact, if you look at the way they were trained, in many cases, it's completely explainable. And it's, I hope that it changes. Um, you know, it's, I'm sure you're sharing a message of how to train properly. I'm sharing a message of how to train properly, but you know, in the big scheme of the world where us and everyone else who's carrying this type of message is a, is a small fraction of people who could benefit from, uh, from a new way of thinking. And I think there, I truly believe Adam, there are a lot of instructors out there when I share this, these instructors don't, they don't, they don't get the epiphany. They don't look at me and say, Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh, you're so right. No, <laughs> but they look at me and they say, you are an idiot. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm a good instructor. They defend themselves instead of, if they could step back and kind of be a third party observer to how they're doing their training and could be um, not emotionally connected to how they're doing the training, they'd see some of this. It is so easy for you to see when you're not like the trainer, you know, you're the observer. And sometimes the trainer is so close to their lesson plan and so committed to what they think is the right way to do it that they are in denial and sometimes get very defensive and angry because you're suggesting that there might be, might be a different way to look at this. Some, some are, some have eye-opening experiences and some just want to, 
they, they just want to like throat punch you for suggesting that they've done something <laughs> that would could be done differently. Yeah, I think I think there's two really important points there. One is from like you said, for people that are doing these critical incident reviews, whether they be government officials or you know special investigators, civilian oversight committees, whatever it is, I think one of the major things, and this has always been a problem, is that they look at what's on paper as here's your policy, here's your SOP, here's what it says here. You didn't do that, therefore you're now at fault or now you're the one that's being looked at and they don't understand the totality of the situation. So I think one of the major things that I've, I think that I would like to champion and, and, and I know you are yourself is sharing that there's more to a situation then here's the policy, here's the procedure, here's what the officer needs to do, or here's what the fireman needs to do, or here's what the first responder, or here's what the military member needs to do. Because there's, you're taking 1% of a complete situation and you're discounting the human element. And, and that's, that is the situation, is that human element. So I think that's one major point. The other being you said for trainers, I'm, and listen, my, I'm, I'm completely open and honest about this. I used to be one of those guys that was like, what are you talking? Don't tell me how to do my job. I know what I'm doing. I know this stuff inside and out. Cause when I first started doing it and it was, I started with defensive tactics training. I had done martial arts for a, an extended period of time. That was my, that was my day to day. Like I was, I was doing martial arts training every day. Um, I was learning from multiple different people, multiple systems, and now I'm like, okay, here's the, here's one specific system. I'm, I know this stuff inside and out. And every time somebody said, well, maybe you should look at it this way. I'd be like, yeah, okay, sure. Whatever. And I would discount it, but I don't know if it's just, just um, time in or getting older and wiser, but you start to realize that you don't like from when I first started, I look back now and I laugh. I didn't know jack shit about anything that I was teaching. I knew what was in the book. I knew what I was saying and teaching, but I didn't understand why or how. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really didn't understand was the learning modality that you had spoken to is that I think one of the major things, and here's, here, okay, here's a question for you. I'll say my piece. And then I want to, I want to hear your thought on it. Okay. If you were to pick one thing that you think should be incorporated into every instructor level training, what would it be? So mine would be learning modalities for students. So instructors need to understand and learn how people learn. They have to understand how their students are going to learn and that not everybody learns the same because that's a core component of education as a whole. Every single person that's a teacher that goes through education learns that and they learn it right from day one is these are things that are, this is the core part of what you're doing is that not everybody's the same and not everyone's going to learn at the same rate or in the same way. And a lot of the times that I've seen in instructor level training on the first responder police side, military side as well, they don't, they may cover it, they may touch on it, but they don't go far enough in depth. It's here's your PowerPoint and then let's go hands-on. Let's get onto the mat. Let's actually get into the stuff that you came here for. And that stuff gets brushed aside and never touched on again. Yeah. I agree with you on the, uh, on, on, on the value of the learning modalities. I would add a, a couple of things to that. I think that <laughs> it's funny that you said that because I'm like that, 
that was probably going to be my number one. So now that it's your number one, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it have, me, yeah. I have this awkward pause of like, oh man, he, he, he used the best one. Um, so what, what I would say is that it's very, it is, as we teach and train, what we have to keep in mind is that there are two learning systems in our brain. There's actually multiple learning systems. I'll talk about two. The cognitive, which is the, what do I need to know? When do I need to know it? Why do I need to know it? We learn that mostly in the classroom. And then we do hands-on stuff. And that's the, how do I do it? So we have the classroom component cognitive. We have the hands-on kinesthetic. What I would encourage instructors to do is to, is to marry up the two so that when we're in the field teaching the hands-on stuff, we're sprinkling onto that the what, the when, and the why as we're teaching the how, so that we don't just learn the how. See, if we're in the field and all we're, all we're focused on is the how, the how, the how, the how, then we get to actually do it in the real stress environment. We do the how without realizing why and when, and is this the right thing to do? So in the stress of doing actual field evolutions, the instructor would help the student by Perhaps if they've already taught it in the classroom using um, Socratic teaching methodology, which is to teach by asking questions. So before they do the evolution, maybe they would cue or query the students with a series of questions about the cognitive side of it. Let's talk about when and why and how of this. Now let's do it. And as after we do it, then maybe we would debrief a little bit on the when and the why and the how and circumstances that might be a little different. And really what we're trying to do is not just get them to learn how to do it, but get them to be critical thinkers as they're learning how to do it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It makes sense. Yeah. I hope, I hope people listening, it makes sense to them because it's, I've always thought being an instructor, well, I shouldn't say I've always thought because I just <laughs> demonstrated that I didn't always think this, but you should always be a lifelong learner in the field, your chosen field of profession, right? You're, whatever you're passionate about, you should always be learning. And that doesn't necessarily mean learning everything about your specific niche or job or profession. It means going outside of the box and learning best practices from other professions because that's that's where the that's where the bread and butter comes from that's where the the best points that i've ever found they come from outside of what i've what i was taught or the profession that i was in right I, I um, and i, th I, I th you know i i just think that's a really important message for for anybody listening to this or your audience as well i think that's i think that's a great takeaway from this it, it is and you know that's probably one of been one of the greatest learning opportunities for me as I have transitioned to this message to industry is, you know, I spent my whole adult life serving as a, as a first responder. So I really didn't have much immersion into how the private world looks at things and getting these chances to go in and see how these private companies 
look at things and how even just something as if they're a publicly traded company, how does shareholder demand for revenues and profits drive culture all the way down to the front line where a worker might stick their hand in a machine because they don't want to waste the time to follow the proper safety procedure. And then when they stick their hand in the machine and their hand gets stamped off, they get written up for not following the procedure. And that seems to be the end of the analysis, where in fact, if you were to interview that employee about why they stuck their hand in the machine, what you might learn is they stuck the hand in the machine because they had a fear of getting in trouble for slowing production, which would then impact revenues. And they, they had a more, more fear of consequence than the fear of losing their hand. And when you understand that fear is more powerful than the fear of having your hand stamped off, then you start to understand more about what drives the kind of behavior that causes somebody to seemingly not be paying attention to what they're doing. They're really paying attention to what they're doing, but their attention is on don't slow the production, not how do I keep from losing my hand? And this, the, the whole dynamic of that, you know, because in the public world, we're not driven by, you know, profits and shareholders. And so to see how that world spins and how it can influence culture all the way down to the frontline worker behavior has been rather fascinating for me to step outside, you know, the world that I knew into this world that I didn't know. It's learning a lot learning a lot you know it's funny the irony in that is when and this is something that maybe it just it jumps out at you when you especially when you move from a a profession like law enforcement military or something that's um governmental or anything like that and then you step into the private industry and you see those types of things where it's priority goes to profitability and safety sometimes gets left behind but the irony is that, you know, that, that worker gets injured on the job. The, the total cost of the company is going to far and exceed any type of efficiency they would have gained by skirting the safety measures due to time loss, insurance. You know, they, there's a, a plethora of costs that come with that worker being overtime and crude if you have to bring another person. Like, it's, it's funny because when you look at the bottom line, and, and I'm sure you see this too when you, when you talk to these companies, is that you're actually better off spending more time on the training and teaching them how to do things properly and safely because it avoids an incident that's going to cost you 10 times as much. That, that is absolutely correct. Um, if we can inspire the decision makers to see the potential loss consequence, because if they haven't had those losses, it's hard for them to, believe that that might ever happen if it hasn't happened, if they haven't had a significant loss event, you know, it'd be kind of like you're going into a factory and say, you know, we need to talk about insurance just in case a plane lands on the roof of your uh, roof of your factory here. And they'd be like, come on, you know, that's very far reaching. No plane has ever landed on the roof of our factory and we're willing to take the chance that no plane ever will. There are a lot of folks in management, I don't think the safety people necessarily think this way, but a lot of folks in management that are in denial that they're just 
they're just one unlucky roll of the dice away from a significant event that just hasn't happened yet, but it's been because of a series of lucky outcomes rather than the application of best practices. And the best practices of proper training and such, well, that requires time and investment of money. And sometimes they're not willing to commit the time or to invest the money. And I see this some even in, in public safety organizations. You know, the cost, the, there is a cost to doing it right. There is arguably a greater cost to not do it right. And, uh, but the greater cost to not doing it right is deferred. It's not immediate. The cost of doing it right is immediate. I have to spend this money. We have to spend this time. We have to have this incur this overtime. The deferred is, well, if it, if it never happens, well, then we never incur the cost. So we'll take that chance. And, and uh, there's a lot, a lot of organizations out there willing to take the chance. You know, it's funny. I, in my mind, I'm, I'm kind of dovetailing all the things that we've talked about today together. And you had t- spoken about with that incident involving the officer and the firearm, um, action versus reaction, how, you know, you had said, you know, his action to disarm that subject, that was immediate. And the reaction of the subject was slow. And now we're talking about, you know, safety and, and liabilities on the corporate side of things. Where you see that in the law enforcement, first responder, military side is that changes aren't made unless something bad happens. There has to be an incident in order to change policy. And I know you've seen, it's no different. It doesn't matter if you're in Canada, in the US, in the UK, or anywhere in the world. Agencies aren't going to make wholesale changes unless there's a reason to, unless there's a public outcry, somebody gets killed, some, there's a serious incident, and that's when something changes. Even though there's the best intentions and the best information to change it before it happens, unless it does happen, they're not going to change it. Um, and it's, if, I, if I could add one piece to that. Sure, yeah. The bad, the bad thing has to happen in our agency. If the bad thing happens Very three true. communities over – then we're still in denial that it'll ever happen here because we're better and smarter and better equipped and better trained. And, you know, it, we're not surprised it happened to them. You know, look at them. It wouldn't happen to us, though, because we've got it figured out. And that's so sadly, you're right. And adding to that, that tragedy usually has to happen within our own organization for us to have our eyes opened wide of the, the realization that we were vulnerable. You know, look at how many, how many bad things are happening, Adam, that if you were to take a broad approach and say, okay, this bad thing happened in this department, how many times has that or something so similar to that, that we could package it together and say, those two are the same mm-hmm. are happening across the broad spectrum of our profession. Mm-hmm. You know, very rarely does anyone have a first time occurrence of a bad event, even in, in industry. But if we just look at some other organization and say, well, unlucky for them, but, you know, it hasn't happened here, so we're not going to worry about it. We're not learning from, you know, every, every, every near miss and, and casualty in another organization is a gift for us if we're willing to accept the gift and learn from it and maybe change the way we do things as a result of their tragedy. You know, we're not, we, we all don't have to have our own original tragic outcome to change but some organizations as you said you know if it hasn't happened it won't happen they're in denial and 
sometimes even when bad things happen, they don't change things. Oh my goodness. It's, <laughs> and that's painful. You know, yep, yep. they have a tragic event and they, they still don't change anything because it's, it takes time and effort and money and, and commitment and culture change and all these things that, you know, it's easy to talk change, hard to implement. So, so on that, Rich, why don't, I know your listeners obviously know um, with the situational, um, situational awareness matters and, and the programs that you do and the stuff that you do. Can you share a little bit for, for our listeners as to your company, your program, the consulting work that you do and, and, and kind of bring this all home for us? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so our entire, my entire focus is helping individuals and teams see the bad things coming in time to prevent bad outcomes. That's kind of my mantra. And the whole how to do that is how to develop learning, how to develop and maintain situational awareness in stressful environments, and then how to use the situational awareness to improve high-risk decision-making outcomes and that all kind of comes together as a as a package of of knowledge um that then i I hope that that the trainers then what i really hope is that the trainers then take the things that i teach and they then incorporate it into their teaching methodologies you know that they bring it to life by incorporating these situation awareness, high-risk decision-making components into actually how they're teaching both the cognitive and the hands-on kinesthetic components of their training. That's, that's my greatest wish is that these lessons then are, you know, brought to life. And sometimes uh, organizations will have me after I do a training, um, they'll engage me to, um, prepare and send them a little video vignette like once a month hey rich gasway here your situational awareness lesson this month and kind of give them a little uh a little value add a little reminder so each month you know if you do something one time and it's a knockoff event and everybody that gets all rah-rah but then they go back to life and challenges and time demands and and it's very easy for that information to you know, slide out of memory, so to speak. So having some, I'm most inspired by those organizations that say, we're not interested in just the one time knockoff, come in, wow them with a four hour presentation and then, you know, mic drop and leave town. I'll do that. You know, I'll do that. But the greater um, inspiration for me is when they say, now, where do we go from here? How do we keep this message alive? How do we continue to grow the knowledge and the talent and the change of thinking and behavior and essay in our, in our members? You know, I think there's some organizations and you probably see this too, Adam, they expect you to come in and in, in one session, just sprinkle your pixie dust around and everything's going to be changed and better because you come in and gave them some ideas. And then when you leave those ideas, fall into the shadows and then they fall back to their former way of thinking and doing. And, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't last. And so that's part of the challenge is not just teaching someone how teaching an organization, how to have better awareness and how to improve decision-making as a skill, but then to 
put it to life, you know, to turn it into um, daily practice, turn it into monthly reminders. You know, I, sometimes I have organizations say, we, we send out a bulletin, uh, you know, a monthly safety bulletin. Can you contribute something to a monthly safety bulletin that can be a, you know, two or 300 word lesson that the supervisor can read to the employees that remind them about something about situational awareness. And we'll do this, you know, on a monthly basis, at least, you know, if they're getting a bite at it, every period, you know, every so often it's, it's harder to completely forget about it when it just keeps coming back and, and being reminded to you, you know, about different components of why it's so important and tips and tricks and hacks and best practices keep coming and keep coming, then, you know, over the course of time, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, uh, going on a diet. You can't say, well, I'm going to go on a diet and wake up the next morning and be 30 pounds lighter. It's a process of changing habits and ways of thinking and ways of eating and ways of exercising. And, you know, it's a, it's a whole package and it, and it, and it changes over time, not changes with one, off event if that makes sense yeah you can't you have to you have to find a way to weave it in and interwork it into the framework of what you're doing right you can't right. if those one-offs don't work i mean they work for a bit but they don't stick around like you said it just fades off and you know they you could you could give the most amazing speech you know there's funny there's a lot of a lot of information out there you know somebody like tony robbins or something get comes in and does a speech to a giant corporation everyone's all rah rah and their sales go up 200 percent the next week and then after two weeks there's an extremely sharp decline to either the standard they were at before or even below because there's that drop off right, right? and and that's something that they were super interested in because you have like a huge motivational speaker and for some reason when when we talk about safety a lot of people tend to shut off, right? Oh God, I got to sit through another safety briefing. Okay. Let's, let's hear it. Right. And they're thinking about everything, but, um, so if an organization can find a way to work that into their programs, and I think that's a, you know, monthly memos, or, you know, if you're doing daily briefs with your supervisors or people on the floor or whatever it is, I think that's a great way to do it. So if, if there are companies or people that are listening to this and they want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? Yeah, thanks. And uh, we'll do the same for your, uh, programs as well. So the easiest, best way to find me is my website. And it's just samatters.com. And that's SA for situational awareness, just the shortened mm-hmm. um, abbreviation. SA matters, all together one word, samatters.com. And there is, you know, the blog, the podcast, the contact me uh, tab. If somebody wants to see the programs, they're listed there. If they're if they want to buy a book or one of my videos, it's it's all there. Everything they would want there to learn about the topic of situational awareness is including how to reach me with the contact me tab is right there at that one location. So instead of just worried about my email and my phone number and everything, just samatters.com and that's the that's the one-stop shop for everything you would want. In fact, for your for your listeners, there's a lot of free resources there. All the podcasts are free. Um, all my blog articles are free. So if somebody 
wanted to see or learn a little bit more about some of the things that we talked about, they could go there and just for free immerse themselves, invest their time and, and, uh, and learn. There's over 400 articles that I've written on the topic of situational awareness and high risk decision making. So they won't run out of, they won't run out of content to inspire them to whatever level they feel inspired. That's, that's awesome. And what we're going to do is I'm going to make sure too on our end, we're going to have links to all those resources on our site so that everybody can find you right from our website as well. Um, and, and get your message out there. I think it's such a fantastic message. Whatever I can do to help you share that I'm going to do, man. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a great cause and I think what you're doing is super important and there's not enough people doing it. So I want to thank you for that as well. Well, thank you. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate your mission as well, but you at the front end said how to reach you, but let's do it again here on the tail end. Sure. Uh, how, how, to, how to find you and get connected with you. Sure. Yeah. So same thing. Uh, the website is going to kind of be the hub for everything. And, and the website is thebreakdown.ca. So T-H-E breakdown.ca. On there, we're going to have the podcasts. Obviously, you're going to be able to access it on there. But one of the other key parts of our website is that it's a resource, just like yours. One of the things that we focused on was for first responders, for law enforcement and military. And so we have like a crisis support page on our website. So for anybody who's in crisis, you know, any, you know, any first responder, police officer, military member that takes their own life is is one too many. And that's a message that has to get out to everyone is that there are people, you know, if if you're ever in a situation and, and you're in crisis or you feel like, you know, you can't take it anymore, there are resources out there for you whether they be crisis helplines, anything like that. So on our, right on our website, one of the first things you find um, are support for any members of the community that need crisis support. And then we also share in tips and tricks and articles, just like you have um, situational awareness and, and books and resources for anybody in, in all these professions. And uh, hopefully it'll kind of just be a hub for everyone to, um, to get information or to contact. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I've done is I've had people reach out to me on the website with contact me. They're like, Hey, I was wondering if you could get me in touch with this person because uh, I know you talk to them. So I'm doing a lot of that back and forth where I'm kind of the intermediary between uh, two different experts, getting them in touch with each other. So if right. you have experts that listen to your show um, and you think you have something valuable to share, just like you do, Rich, then you can get us get in touch with me on there. And uh, I'm more than happy to have everybody on our show to share the information, to share the knowledge and to get it out there for everyone. Now, if they wanted to subscribe to your podcast, mm-hmm. And they go to, you know, their podcast platform. What would they put into the search term that would help them to find the podcast? Yeah, it kept it real simple. The, you just search tactical breakdown. So two words, tactical breakdown. That's it. It's, uh, and it's on all the major podcast providers. Uh, so you can check it out now. Uh, we have a couple episodes up. But like I said, there's going to be about a dozen more coming out in the next couple of weeks. And then every week after that, we're, we're going to be shooting these amazing interviews out. Um, with our subject matter experts, just sharing knowledge and information. Um, and some of them are going to be, you know, for certain industries. So sometimes we're talking about firearms training, but a lot of it is about mental health, you know, dealing with people in crisis. And and there's just the the topics are kind of go from one side of the fence to the other. It's, it's all over the place, um, but it's all really relevant information for some of the best experts in the world. So Good. Well, thank you for, for your mission. Thank you for the opportunity to be on your show show thank you for coming on to my show and uh and and helping to advance my mission and the awareness of my listeners and viewers on the 
the uh, the lane that you are passionate about and, and trying to make a difference there too. So thank you for your time. Absolutely, man. I mean, anytime I can help out or anything like that, I'm more than willing. And I appreciate you taking the time as well. I know how busy you are. Um, I know we spoke earlier and we were trying to get this rolling. So uh, anytime, man, let's, uh, let's do this again. Okay. Thanks, Adam. Thanks. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us today on Tactical Breakdown. Another huge thank you to Dr. Gassaway for joining us on the podcast today. If you want to get a hold of Rich, you can find him again at samatters.com or richgassaway.com. And he's on social. You can reach him out. It's at samatters. And he is a wealth of knowledge and information. And he and I discussed that he's happy to speak with absolutely anybody. If your agency or your company wants to have Rich in to speak, please reach out to him and he will help you out with whatever you need. Again, if you haven't already, check out Tactical Breakdown at thebreakdown.ca. That's T-H-E-B-R-E-A-K-D-O-W-N.ca because we're up here in Canada. And we are giving away right now a $400 prize package gear bag, patrol bag, full of swag for everybody who joins our email list and subscribes to the podcast. So make sure you get on that. Do that today. And we're going to be making that draw at the end of August. Thank you again so much for your love, your support. I am appreciating all the comments. Everybody who's reached out to me, it means a lot. And it's given me the juice to keep this going and hit it harder every single time. So thank you again. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. And we'll see you next time. Stay safe.